Tonight, uh, we are drawing in towards the close of our study of the life of David, and we're in 2 Samuel 23. And as we uh, come to the end here, we're, we're in the midst of a section here at the end of 2 Samuel, chapters 21 through 24, that everybody has agreed that these chapters have little to no chronological unity. We've actually, we've finished, we've kind of, we've been going, we've been marching straight chronologically through David's life and reign. And there's been, um, the author's been selective. All history is selective history. Um, the author's been selective with what he's included. And we just ended that big, huge section, which was David's sin with Bathsheba and then all the consequences that came from it. So now, as the author of Samuel wants to continue painting this portrait for us of David, David the ideal king, David the king that we need, David uh, the one who is righteous, the one who is faithful, um, we're still going after that question. He wants to kind of drive home in these final chapters, who may serve as king of Israel? Who is the king that we need? Who is the ideal king? And David shows us that. Uh, he shows us what we need to be looking for in an ideal king. We need a righteous king. We need a king that is faithful. We need a king that is gracious. And we've seen all these things in David. But as the last three weeks have shown us, right, They've also shown us that David cannot be the ideal king. What he actually shows, he shows us in so many ways the ideal king that we should be looking for, but he also shows us why he can't be the ideal king. And so as, the, as, this, as this book uh, draws to a conclusion, the account of the life and reign of David uh, draws to a conclusion, the author wants to round out this portrait that he's been drawing to show us once and for all. That there is an ideal king. Okay? So with that in mind, let's read here. We're going to read 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 17. These are the name of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachimanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him... Uh, among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. That's <laughs> not my name. Um, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was, was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And therefore he did not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. 
This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, as we come to your word, we would ask, as we always do, that you would that you would speak to us, that you'd give us your spirit, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, three things I've got for you there on your handout tonight that I want to see. And the first one is understanding where David's coming from in this story, this little story that we get here in Second Samuel 23. Again, they're disconnected stories, but this is one that the author wants to throw in. The, the whole chapter's purpose, actually, is just to tell us the names of David's 30 mighty men. But in the midst of that chapter, we get this story of David being out against the Philistines and longing for water, and these men um, kind of like out of Braveheart going and getting it, okay? And David has this sigh, this, this expression of this longing that he has to quench his thirst, but not only quench his thirst, but to quench it with the water specifically from the well that's at Bethlehem where the Philistines are actually holding up. And these events, they most likely took place, there's talk of the Philistines in the Valley of Rephaim, there's talk about David being in the stronghold, uh, very likely what was taking place in 2 Samuel 5. You can go back and read that for yourself. But if you remember in 2 Samuel 5, David had just become king, He'd just been recognized as king. Saul is dead. He's now got the crown. He's now been crowned. He's moving the capital to Jerusalem. And no sooner has he become king than that old enemy, the Philistines, they're going to try David one more time. They want to see if he's got the medal, if he see, what, see if he's got what it takes uh, to be king. So they're going to test the waters. And so David has gone out to take his stand uh, in his first real test as the new king. And the, tor- the story that we have here in 2 Samuel 23 tells us three things about how bad the situation is, okay? One, it's harvest time. That is a pivotal time of year for the whole kingdom. It's harvest time. Uh, Two, David's in a cave. He can't even sit on his throne. He's in a cave, um, and it's not the last time that he's... It's not the first time he's been in a cave, and it won't be the last time. He goes, flees to a cave uh, when... Saul is after him. He flees to a cave. We saw last week when Absalom, his son, is after him. And the third one is that the Philistines are in the valley of Rephaim, meaning they are in the heart of Israel. They are only a few miles south of Jerusalem, the capital, okay? The situation is dire, okay? In other words, Israel is set up for a perfect storm of disaster. The enemy is so far into the country that they're this close to being in the capital. David can't even sit on his throne because of this threat. And it's harvest time. So if the Philistines stay where they are, they could very easily destroy the crops and the kingdom will be without food for an entire year. Okay? So realistically, the circumstance is that the reign of David and the life of the kingdom are on the verge of receiving a death blow. Okay, and, and so why I re- reiterate this is because we know the story, right? We've seen, we've seen David against the odds uh, wrestling analogy. There's this, it's like Hulk Hogan. Uh, you, everybody knows who Hulk Hogan is, right? Hulk Hogan kind of, you know, he made wrestling. He was like one of the biggest names in wrestling ever, right? But people got really tired of him because he always won. Like, it didn't matter how tall the bad guy is. I mean, he wrestled Andre the Giant, the biggest guy that's ever, ever been, ever. He's huge. Um, all these guys would come out. It didn't matter who you sent out against Hulk Hogan. He'd get beat up for a little while, and then he would what? He'd hulk up, right? 
He'd, he'd start shaking his fist and he's walking around the ring and the guys would be like hitting him and it wouldn't phase him. And it just got tired because everybody was tired of watching Hulk Hogan because he always won. And so we kind of read this and we're like, well, we know where it's going. David's against the odds and God's going to be with him and blah, blah, blah. But I want you to let the circumstances sink in because only when you let the circumstances sink in where David was at this point in time, what is actually facing him in the country, do we kind of understand this sigh that he gives? Oh, that someone would give me water from the well at Bethlehem, right? From the man on the ground point of view, disaster is staring everyone in the face. And it's that context that leads David to say longingly that he's thirsty. Okay, but here's the thing. David's not really thirsty. And what do I mean there? Okay, we know David was a very skilled war chief. He was good in battle. He knew what he was doing. You don't set up your camp where there is no water, okay? So it is uncomfortable that they would be set up somewhere where there's no water. So his expression is not like, I haven't had water, I need some water. That's not what it is, okay? His longing, his sigh, is spiritual, It is a longing of his soul. And he's not really telling anyone in particular. He just kind of says it in exasperation as he's surveying the landscape and what's ahead of him. He's thirsty for the promises of God to be real in his life. He is thirsting for the grace of God, which he's been told about, which he's seen, to once again be real in his life. And this is exactly what we looked at last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but Psalm 63, we looked at last year, last week, when David says, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's this great scene in the Shawshank Redemption, uh, that movie that comes on TBS or TNT every other day. Um, it's a great movie, though. Uh, and it's Andy Dufresne, the main character, is sitting in the yard with Morgan Freeman's character, Red. And he asks him, he says, do you think you'll ever get out? And they're just kind of, and they're both facing long time in prison. And Andy says this, you know where I'd go if I got out? Zawantaneo. It's a place in Mexico, right on the Pacific. And you know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? That it's a place that has no memory. A warm place with no memory. That's where I'd go. This is a guy facing life in prison, okay? And the moment that he says that, there's something that you kind of get, right? The moment that he says that, you get that for Andy Dufresne, Mexico is not some dream vacation. It's hope. It's life to him. Something he longs for. It's something that he looks forward to. It's something that brings light into the prison yard that he's stuck in with all its drab and gray colors. David's cry for a drink is just like that. We've seen over and over how committed God was to David. Uh, he was a shepherd boy that his father even forgot. Um, he goes up against Goliath and defies all the odds. Saul, the king, comes after him. He defies all the odds. He goes up against his own very grievous sin, yet God still pursues him in grace and forgives him and reconciles him. But here we have David weak, David threatened, Israel threatened, and the questions are swirling. Am I really the king? Is this really going to work? Am I really going to fulfill what God has called me to do? So yet, despite the amazing promises of God, 
Everything seems threatened. And so for David in this moment, as all the other moments in his weakness that we've seen, his circumstances seem more real to him than God's promises. His longing is for God's promises to be his reality. That's what he's struggling with. And the reason I think that hits home is because, y'all, we all feel this way, do we not? I don't know what it is uh, for you right now, what this semester has been for you, what this year has been for you. But, you know, you, you, you get it, right? You, you come every week. You're, you're, you're meeting with people, other Christians. You're, you're doing the Christian thing, right? And you know God loves you. You know God takes care of you. You know God sent his son for you. But it could be that this year, all this year has done for you is reinforced that no matter how hard you try, you fail. That no matter how hard you try, you do not come anywhere close to that place you're trying to be. And you look over the last semester, you look over the last year, and you say, that's all it's been. And I don't know what to do with it. For, for all that you've done, you still have no clue what you're doing this summer, right? Let alone next year. Or you could be you're like, I know God promises that if, he is, that if I'm in Him, He never leaves me. He will never forsake me. But I look over this last semester, I look over this last year, and I have never been more lonely in my life. I've been hurt. Hurtful things have been said. There's times I've been forgotten to be included. And that's what's shaping me. That's what's defining me, not anything about God. We're all longing for a drink from the well of Bethlehem. We're all longing for that sweet water. And some of us don't even know that we're thirsty. <laughs> and for David and for us, that sweet water is the grace of the promises of God realized in our life. We're all looking for that. That's David's sigh. Let's look at the, really the crux of the story, and that's the mighty men's response, because it's awesome, right? The mighty men's response, we have three of David's mighty men. They hear David's cry, and they're going to do something about it, okay? And the whole purpose of 23, of chapter 23, is to tell us about these 30 mighty men. Uh, but here we get the story of the three of them. And basically, who are these mighty men? When David first fled into the wilderness, when King Saul was after him, didn't want him to be king, wanted to kill him, there were these men that rallied to David. Rallied to David knowing that he was God's anointed one, knowing that he would be king. They rallied to him, and they became what history records for us as David's mighty men. Okay, They were his special forces. They were like the most elite guys in the country. Uh, one of my favorite shows a few years back was this uh, documentary show on Discovery Channel called Surviving the Cut. I'm just generally fascinated by our military as it is. I always wanted to be in it, and I never could get in. Long story. Um, bum knees. Anyway, um, each week, each episode was about the trials and tests that the men of our military go through to get into the elite forces. Okay? And, like, these are elite forces that, like, you're already in the military. You're already suffering from function. And you're volunteering to go through more trial and more tribulation to be even more elite than you already are. you got Green Berets, Navy SEALs, SEAL snipers, special forces divers. All paratroopers, all these things. And you watch, you watch these shows and you're like, America, right? You're like, this is all, you know, our country is in good hands when you watch these shows. David's mighty men are those men. They were those men and they were faithful and they were loyal and they rallied to David. And so we get three of these guys, the elite of the elite, and they hear David. They obviously hear David because you look at verse um, 
16, Dave, 15, David makes this exclamation. And then all of a sudden in 16, we're just told, and the mighty men broke through. So they heard David and we get this one verse that says, and so they just went and got the water. And that's all we get. We don't get the story. We don't get the story. There was a garrison at Bethlehem. They would have had to cut their way through the lines of the Philistines. They would have gotten to Bethlehem where there would have been a garrison of at least 20 soldiers, three guys hacking their way to this well. And you can imagine the Philistines going, okay, what is going on? Are we about to be attacked? What are they doing? Do they want our gold? Water. What is going on? I'm dying now. Mighty men have slain me. I'm dead. Um... And they bring the water back to, and the fight up to Bethlehem would have been an uphill battle. I mean, it's crazy. And we don't get any of the details, and we're kind of mad about that. And so they bring this water back to David. And then our mind is really blown, right? He doesn't drink it. <laughs> and you're like, dude, do you know what this took for them to get you this water, right? He refuses to drink it. And not only does he refuse to drink it, he pours it out. And you're like, do you hate these guys? What is going on? But there's a key. You look at verse 16. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went and risked their lives? He poured it out before the Lord. So these men would not have been mad when David did this. They actually would have been very honored. He pours it out to the Lord. It was a drink Offering, He uses the, the language of sacrifice about their blood, right? David turns this into an act of worship. What is going on? David is saying, I realize because of the sacrifice of these men that God is with me. In other words, what these mighty men have done for David is that they have made the promises of God real in his life. That is what they've done. And David knew that through these men and through their act that God had spoken a word of grace to him. And now he knew that he would be victorious and that God would be with them and that everything would be well in the land. They knew what they were in the mighty men themselves. They aren't just daredevils. They're not like, hey, you hear what he said? Let's go kill some guys. Like, it's not that. They're not just trying to be insane for the thrill of it. They knew what they were doing, betting their lives on the promises of God and devoting themselves to their king. That's what they're doing. Okay, And so because of all of this and the other stories that we get of the mighty men, these men are known as mighty, right? Every man wants to be known as mighty. Don't deny it, right? Um, that's why we suck in in the mirror and do this and stuff. Um, and God, God's word, this story typifies the mighty men and God's word calls them David's mighty men. So what does it mean? I just want to think about this for a second. What does it mean to be mighty in God's eyes, what does it mean? I give a nod to Tim Keller for these points. But um, here's the first one I think that we can see from this really little story. And the first one from the mighty men is that, and, and from David is we get this. Recognizing that everything is a gift from God. And everything is a gift from God solely as a result of his promises. Being mighty in God's eyes is recognizing that everything is a gift from God solely as a result of His promises, even when circumstances tell you differently. Right? That's really what David's pouring out is about. The water, he's saying, this water is not a trophy for me. 
It's not a trophy for these men. It's a gift that God has given me. These men, too, they're saying, they're saying we weren't going to play the hero. We want to know the promises of God. And we know that the promises of God are at stake. That's why we went. You know, and we think of mightiness. We, that word just automatically conjures up, I mean, something like this story. These mighty acts where I'm just going to go out and I'm going to slay the giant, right? That's what we think the whole David story is about. But what if real mightiness is actually something different? Real mightiness is actually what leads maybe to the big stories. Real mightiness might actually be thinking of the promises of God, dwelling on the promises of God, seeing everything in my life as a gift, and living on the basis of that reality in the regular Monday through Friday of my life. My boring Monday morning where I wake up and it's just another Monday, but God is with me. God is for me. No matter what my week holds, that's true. No matter when circumstances try to define me, I know what is true. What if real mightiness says that my accomplishments do not but define me? And because they do not define me, I can actually pour them out before the Lord. What if real mightiness says how, how good I do in school does not and cannot define me? Therefore, I can pour it out before the Lord. What job I've secured this summer doesn't define me, so I can pour it out before the Lord. How many people like me does not define me. Therefore, I can pour it out before the Lord. Most people would agree, right, that, can't, that greed is a cancer on any society or any community, right? Um, greed greed does, ends up damaging everyone, even if one, only one person is doing it. But here's the thing. We are all swimming in a cesspool of meritocracy. Have you heard this term before? Our lives are living, we're in a culture of meritocracy, especially on campus, where everything in your life is about what you do and how well you do it. That is your life. It has been your life to this point, whether you recognize it or not. And there's only one thing, see, living in a meritocracy, you cannot overcome greed. Because when you attain something, you look at it and you say, I killed myself to get here. I don't have to give it to anybody. What is the only thing that can break greed? The only thing that can break greed is to truly look at everything in my life and say, that's a gift. Yes, I put forth effort. And there's no minimalizing effort in the effort that we need and do put into things. But what about when we come to the realization that all we are and all that we have is a gift? Where I grew up, how I grew up, on and on and on, where I'm at school, all these things, right? Some of you may need to admit tonight that the reason you are not a Christian is because you have not yet believed the promises of God and you have no idea what it is to base your life on them. Because you hear things like, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, right? But you say, yeah, but my way is going pretty well. I don't really need it. What is it like to be mighty? It's to base your life on the gift and the promises of God. The second one, and these mighty men show us this the most, is that for the mighty men, I love this, their king's wish was automatically their command. David is not commanding anybody to do anything. He is just expressing how he feels. And these men, the way verse 16 reads, then they just broke through the Philistines. They heard what their king wanted and they just tore out and they went and got it. 
Their king's wish was their command. These three are so devoted that there was no difference for them in suggestion and command. This is the biggest difference between a Christian, someone who believes the gospel, and an ethical religious person. It is. Religious ethical persons ask, what is required of me? Okay, I understand there are things in spirituality, there are things in religion that I need, right? And so, so tell me, how do I get them? That's the religious ethical person. What, what means do I need to go about of attaining these things? That is to concentrate on rules or regulations, right? But what is the Christian focused on? The Christian is focused on the heart of God. The religious person says, what do you want me to do? The Christian person asks, what does God love? Because that's what I want. The religious person is looking for reward. The Christian is looking for joy and the pleasure of God himself. And his reward is God himself. Look at verse uh, 15 again. Oh, that someone would get me some water. And then they broke. There was no discussion Their devotion was spontaneous and automatic because they loved their king. You do not have to look far for an illustration of this, y'all. Okay? Think about the beginning of your semesters with your teachers, right? When you begin a class, I kind of remember, I mean, I I was in seminary not long ago, so I, I remember how this goes. The beginning of a year with a professor, especially one you don't know, you immediately want to figure out what does this guy or girl, woman expect, and what do I need to do to measure up, right? Maybe it happens on syllabus day. Maybe, you know, you're trying to get the test schedules and winter pop. You're trying to figure all these things. What are the assignments? What are the expectations? Where do I have to fall in line to measure up with this professor, right? And you find those things out, and you're set, and you're on your way. But what about when you start dating someone at the beginning of a semester? If you're truly interested in that person, you're not going to be waiting around for a syllabus, right? You're going to go after the information yourself. You're going to creep on Facebook and social uh, and Twitter and Instagram and all that, right? You're going you're to find each and everything out that you can find possibly that this person likes, and you're going to try to follow through with it so you can bring that person joy, Right? Because you know that in their joy, you will find joy. Uh, Even better illustration, the not dating dating game. Guys, some of you have failed miserably. You had one task, initiate contact with the girls. That's all you you had to do. And they could have done the rest. That's all. Come on. I guarantee you, for any of you guys that have been paired with a girl that you're interested in, you've contacted them immediately. (laughs) I guarantee you. What is true mightiness in God's eyes? Seeing our lives as gifts from God founded entirely on His promises and loving God in such a way that my relationship with Him is founded not upon what He gives me, but Him Himself. This is what I want to end with really quickly. The key to being mighty. The key to being mighty. Here's the thing. If we end right here with be mighty... We're all done for. We leave the sermon just, if not immediately, eventually crushed. Because the more we try to be mighty, the more we see we're not. Right? Everything has been recorded in this way at the end of this book to give us a well-rounded portrait of David. And in so doing, the author, through that portrait, is pointing us beyond David 
to someone beyond David, the ideal king who really would come and be the perfect king. You see, you have, I've tried to do this all semester, and now I'm going to explicitly lay it out for you. You have two choices in how you treat the Bible in general and the Old Testament especially and its characters. You have two options. You can look at like David and Goliath or Jonah and the fish or Daniel and the lion's den, right? And you can read them like an Aesop's fable, right? What is the moral of the story? What is this thing trying to tell me to do? What is the example to follow? What is the example not to follow? And we minimize it to that. And if that is the Bible to you, as I suspect it has to be to some of you, all the Bible is to you is a wagging finger all the time. And you wonder why you have such trouble reading it and finding joy in it. Something interesting in Luke 24, in the resurrection, we looked at this at the end of the last semester, when Jesus is walking on the road with these two from Emma- on the road to Emmaus, and they sit down, and he tells them finally, do you not understand that these things had to take place? And we read there in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, scripture means written things, that would have been the Old Testament at his time, all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the reason that his death had wrecked them, he does the same thing with the disciples. The reason that his death had wrecked them, that they thought life was falling apart, is because they did not understand how God works and they had not seen it in the plain pages of Scripture as it comes to them. And so Jesus says, let me show you in how it concerns me. Right? They'd only been reading the Bible on a moralistic level. They had not seen that every prophet, every king, every priest, every servant, every liberator, all of those serve one magic purpose, to point to the true and ultimate king, the true and ultimate priest and servant and hero and liberator. In other words, here it is. You can either read the Bible moralistically, meaning you read it as being about you, And you leave a sermon like this and you say, I don't know how I'm going to measure up to that. Or you read it the way Jesus did as about him. Redemptively. That there's this whole story contained from cover to cover in the entirety of the pages of Scripture telling one story about the one who is to come. And then we come to guys like David. We come to guys like his mighty men. And we see, actually, they're just a picture. They're actually just little Lego men compared to the mighty man himself. There's this big overarching story from beginning to end of, get this, one who not only heard your sigh and your longing, he knew it in his heart. And he acted on it. And he entered the battle. And he entered the fray. And he didn't just do it at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. And he knew that that's what it was going to take. Here it is. When David's three mighty men return, in the moment there, David is a changed man. He's overwhelmed with the love of his men and the gratefulness of the grace of God. And so he's able to pour it out. Here it is. I could end tonight by asking, what are you willing to pour out for God? 
But what I really want to ask you is, how are you ever going to be able to pour anything out? Anything. Compared to what Jesus did. Only when you see him as your great mighty man can you begin to even pour a thing out. Can you begin to be generous instead of selfish? Can you begin to be inviting instead of needy? Can you begin to be loving and caring instead of controlling? Can you begin to find confidence and security instead of anxiety and depression? Only when you begin to taste the mightiness and the love of this king, then you begin to realize he really is worth it. That I really can follow him, that I really can obey him, I really can do each and everything he says, even when everything in my life tells me opposite. And that I can believe with a surety that his promises really are true, and not only are they true, but they're for me. just want to ask you, do you believe that tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be mighty. We want to be strong in you, in who you are. Father, will you help us see that it's nowhere in us, but everywhere in you. And that you have promised to put that treasure in jars of clay like us. We thank you for this truth, this gospel truth tonight. We pray that you would begin even now changing our hearts with and through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.